Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the season of debates has finally come to its merciful end with Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton and her Republican counterpart Donald Trump doing battle in Las Vegas, Nevada. And the emerging headline from the final head-to-head tilt is that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be planning for a peaceful transition of power, refusing to promise to accept the result of the election. And that should pose a threat to our democracy at all, right? Well, for all the attention that Trump gets whenever he goes out of his way to deform our democratic norms, it's worth asking ourselves how our civic foundation has come to be so rickety that a glorified reality television huckster can so readily endanger it. Joining us to discuss whether or not there was some notable rot in our foundations that we should have noted much sooner is Rolling Stone columnist and author Matt Taibbi. And finally, for all you history dorks out there, we have a special treat for you. Today, author and historian John Cooper Miller Jr. is on the show. Miller is best known for his 2009 biography of President Woodrow Wilson. He joins us today to examine some of the historical roots of the Democratic Party and how it may inform its future. I'm Jason Lincoln with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. And here's what happened first. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to So That Happened, your weekly podcast in which we describe how we are trapped in the belly of a terrible machine and the machine is bleeding to death. <laughs> My name is Jason Lucas. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and joining me is our good friends, one bad hombre, Zach Carter. <laughs> Woof. And a nasty woman, Lauren Weber. I'll take it as a compliment. You should. I you will. You should. These are compliments. I will. Bad hombres and nasty women. It was one of David Bowie's lesser works, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> last night we had the final presidential debate, perhaps of all time. <laughs> probably it. This is probably it. <laughs> perhaps democracy is dying. <clears throat> and uh, and you know, it was in Las Vegas. Uh, we should be starting with like a cool gambling lead, right? The stakes were high. I feel like I pulled the lever and nothing came out. <laughs> <laughs> I got rich doing something stupid. Yes. Oh no, I got poor doing something stupid. Yeah, basically, basically. So, so it was. Um, so last night, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton teed off on each other for what seemingly will be the last time. You never know. There's non-zero chance of anything this election. But um, I have to say, obviously, the big headline news of the coming out of the debate is that Trump doesn't necessarily plan on on accepting the results of the coming election. You know, I used to say, gosh, guys, there's only 19 days left until the election's over. And then I realized <laughs> this all could break out on election day. Yeah, hundreds of days more. Hundreds of days more of this. So outside of just, you know, the the back and forth of uh, debate analysis, where I think it's pretty clear that Clinton just 
just mop the floor with him after beating him to a bloody pulp uh, rhetorically. Uh, and frankly, <laughs> a bloody ima- orange pulp. frankly, emasculating him in front of everybody. Um, she, uh, we, we, we as a country are still faced with the fact that this ridiculous movement that Donald Trump has built um, is not just going to go away when he's done being a president or presidential candidate. Dear God, I can't believe I had a slip of the tongue there about him being president. Um, that was truly disturbing, Zach. And and him him talking about you know potentially refusing to acknowledge the results of the democratic process and his surrogates going around his his son talking about how there are four million dead people on the voter rolls afterwards. Um, you know this is uh, this is this is really bad news because the the anger and anxiety that exists out there that is fueling. Uh, the, the Trump campaign, that's not, that doesn't just disappear because they're like, oh, well, Hillary Clinton won, so I guess I'm not going to be mad anymore. And if you've got somebody who's demagoguing this, um, this, is how, this is how things get really, really, really bad. Um, I'm not saying that they're going like, to overthrow the government, but that is, the way, that is a way to build a, like, an anti-democratic movement in the country. And that is like, a historically bad thing <laughs> to be talking about. What, what happens, though, if Donald Trump is not you know, every day at the at, at the front of this movement, holding rallies. Well, but what makes you think he wouldn't be? Because it's a lot of work for no payoff. That's. I mean, I don't think Donald Trump does anything for no payoff. I think he probably really does legitimately want to start some sort of TV network. And at that point, you know, it could be kind of like a an outlet, an Avignon presidency for, for this group of people. But he would just have like racist cooking shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's he there... had like a version of it last night on his Facebook Live. Yeah, dude. I mean, I think that I think that one of the if you want to if you want to talk about that being a worry, I think you should think about who fills that void if Trump isn't there because well, I think Trump can only take it so far because he's a complete buffoon yeah. and eventually he gets that's found a, out good, by everybody for being a fraudster and a buffoon. It's really just only a matter of time. Well, and look, there there are a lot of fraudsters and buffoons who have latched on to the Trump phenomenon, right? Like you know. Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, who was just this complete like asshole clown, who has made a career out of out of saying that he's he's into Trump and it's like his punk uh, you know uh, performance art thing. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are smart enough to realize that Trump has actually tapped into something that is out there in in the American public, um, who are not as stupid as Donald Trump is, um, and who who are capable of of demagoguing the way he is demagogued, but demagoguing more effectively for a general audience. Um, and I think I think the country's got to be really careful the next few years to to keep that in check. Uh, and there there aren't a whole lot of great solutions out there. I, I mean, I I think obviously you have to do something to keep economic anxiety in check. You need to you need to make sure that people aren't aren't looking for outlets for their rage about like not being able to get a job and stuff. Um, but a lot of this stuff is already baked into the cake. I mean, we've had thirty years of 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 both racist demagoguery from the Republican Party and also. Uh, frankly, bipartisan economic platform that leaves out a lot of the country. And if th- that's going to be hard to undo. And it, it makes me feel very worried about the next five years. You feel worried? Uh, well, now I do. This has such, been such an uplifting time here on the podcast. Thanks. Uh, we have, have you not listened to us? We're, I, rare, I, <laughs> we're rarely, if ever, uplifting. It's like not a thing we Zach do. Zach basically just told us we're all screwed for the next whenever, and God help us if we ever get to another presidential debate. But. In a fascist way as well. Uh, but look, let's talk about the fun stuff. The fun stuff was the debate um, where Donald Trump did a lot of horrible things again, aside from maybe you know throwing out the democratic process. 
uh, he just he just got his ass kicked. He just also like he just <laughs> wasn't able to talk about any of these issues succinctly or intelligently. I mean, his commentary on abortion was. I mean, I I can't imagine how appalling that was for his evangelical base. I just did not feel like that was at all a decent enough proof that he's pro-life. It, it just wasn't. One of the things that uh, I saw someone remark on last night, and it's it's I think it's the story of this election, is I've never, have you ever seen a presidential candidate like put so little effort and thought into his candidacy? There is... Seriously, though. Like, what's really remarkable about the sort of like recent history of the Trump campaign is that for a brief mad moment, it looked like there was an opportunity for him to close a deal. The polls had tightened. Hillary Clinton had been through a couple bad news cycles. Um, and as the debates began to unfold, there was like a real opportunity for perhaps Donald Trump to submerge his worser instincts and become, you know, someone who's willing to talk about policy, uh, talk about, you know, his vision for America. With a vision, with an underlying vision. Yeah. And I think that, I think when you think about it, really, we're talking about three 90-minute periods of his life they would have to get through and show some competence. The expectations have been set so low that just minimum competence would have probably boosted him in the media's eyes. But this guy is not interested in talking about policy. At a moment where he should be sharpening his message, describing the kind of laws he would prefer to enact, he's bringing Barack Obama's half-brother to the debate. You know, it is... <laughs> He, it's, it's just so much reality show Barack jokes. Obama's. Like, and, and it's, and I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine the, 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 the political professional who said, "What we really need to do to break through right now is uh, bring this like <laughs> weird half brother of Barack Obama to the <laughs> Who's debate." Supporting you. Well, why, sh why should we do that? He was like, hey, "We just should do it. We should, just because reasons." You know, Barack Obama's not on the ballot. I think. Uh, you got, you got to remember that he's. This is a guy who hired Steve Bannon, who is the head of Breitbart News, which right. is this sort of reality-free, um, borderline white nationalist publication. Um, and you know, a guy who names someone like that for their campaign manager is not just doing it because the guy is a, is like good at right-wing propaganda. He's doing it because he thinks this guy has a, like a pretty good idea of, yeah. of how the public works. And I don't think. What 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 worries me, you know, getting back to being depressed, is that like <laughs> that didn't last. Yeah. Steve, Steve, <laughs> let's talk about the fun stuff. Uh, uh, here we two go. minutes of that. We're back to it Worries. I mean, I think that the guys who are advising him are people who who don't actually care about winning elections. They care about blowing up the system for white nationalists. And and this is this is a serious problem. Um, and and they have a media outlet. And they have they have they have one terrible political figure, but they're going to find somebody else. And I, so I think that's that's what's happening with the advice. But you also look at what happened in the Republican debates because Donald Trump wasn't prepared for the Republican debates. He just it's easier to mask because he was just blowing up at all the candidates on the stage. And all the candidates were terrible, right? Yeah. We we had we had like had low energy job and. Word salad Ben Carson. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we, we forgot that Ben Carson is a guy who was selling, like, fake herbal remedies <laughs> saying they would cure cancer and stuff. He's a pitch man for that. And then who, who lied about it and said he never had anything he also, to do like, with this He like, someone thing. sometime. I don't know. You know. Right, right. He, this is a guy who, <laughs> who's... Who, there was a controversy in the Republican primary where Ben Carson was insisting that he had tried to stab someone, and his Republican <laughs> opponents were saying, no, you never tried to stab that guy. Uh, <laughs> this, that's crazy. This, <laughs> I just want to make the message clear. I did try to stab somebody <laughs> yeah. in the dick. All these people are lying. Honestly, like, honestly, 
honestly, though, don't we all wish for, an for those days? Don't we wish? We for do kind of wish for those days, but. But, I mean, that, but that's how he got out of the yeah. out of the out of the debates was by doing this this like alpha male primate dominance shit to these other these other Republicans, and what was remarkable to me on Wednesday night was that Hillary Clinton came out and she just basically alpha'd him into the ground. I mean, if you wanted who was who was the tough badass on stage all night? It was hundred percent her. It was always Hillary Clinton. She looked like she had her shit together. She knew what she was talking about, and she did not have the time of day for this clown on the other side of the stage. That is a hard thing to pull off. As a woman, not that I have experience with this, but women politicians are constantly talking about how they've got to like dance around being able to just dominate somebody else like that. And I, I just thought she was she completely emasculated him, beat him at his own game. Well, I thought it was the most policy focused. To be honestly, I thought I thought Chris Wallace did a great job. He was a more worthy adversary. He than was Trump a more was. worthy, you know. Yeah. And I, the conversation was an, there was actual something to talk. I mean, instead yeah. of. You know, just pacing around the stage and like weird lurking moments. There was, and no <laughs> oh, Ken God, Bone. Yes. There was yeah. actually conversation about things that I cared about. And Chris Wallace went to some deep cuts too. I mean, I think that he, he did. Had real he did. Of the issues. Uh, you know, I I think I think that liberals don't like to give people from Fox News a lot of credit. But I Chris, thought he did great. I've watched Chris Wallace do his job at Fox News Sunday for like, you know, six or seven years now. And he's got a few blind spots. Like, don't ever ask him to to interview Dick Cheney. He just loves Dick Cheney too fucking much to <laughs> right. ever be credulous about it. But but Chris Wallace does a really good job, and he's a really good debate moderator. He's done he's done primary debates in the past two cycles. He's quite good, and he's he's you know what's it was interesting about Chris Wallace is that the moment the moment some conservative thinks, oh, I'm chummy with this guy, he cuts that guy in the ass you know he's he's tough he's he tough. went after trump i mean i thought he was brutal and after all that talk about him saying hey, i wouldn't truth squad as soon as trump opened oh the door God. to the trump foundation talk about, talk about lowering expectations for a debate moderator yeah yeah chris wallace is he, good he played job. the game yeah he's uh, the best sunday show host i know that's a low bar but he is yeah i mean i haven't seen john dickerson and i tend to think that that john is a quality host so I, I i don't i can't really judge but back when i was watching the sunday shows on the regular he was easily the best i mean we're talking about it is a low bar it was right those those are dave, david gregory, dave gregory days. and yeah. george stephanopoulos which are like freaking frack right there <laughs> also, can we can we just talk for a second about how uh, the campaign manager for the Trump campaign made a joke about the bad hombres tweet? Did you see that? Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, she she was like, "That wasn't me." Is she trying to get out of this? What is this? You Let's know, just be clear, in case you have not heard. I mean, Donald Trump said when he was talking about immigration policy that we have some bad hombres out there. Yeah, and some, that was racist and bad. Some bad hombres. Some bad um, hombres. You can't, you can't uh, say that. What, you know, here's here's the thing about Kellyanne Conway is that... Is she just, like, running mo- as fast as she can? Most of America is getting to know Kellyanne Conway for the first time now because she's on the Trump campaign. Yeah. Um, prior to being on the Trump campaign, she was actually a very, very credible person in politics and ran a very successful polling operation. And uh, the the fact that she's now, I think, culturally tied to the Trump campaign is enormously bad for her um, because she's had to say and do things that I don't think she actually believes. And uh, it, I think it was, I think she's going to come to Rue getting in bed. I think with, she already not, is. Metaphorically, I- metaphorically with, with Trump. Um, and y- like you said, she's starting to kind of pull away. I mean, I, I saw her interviewed after the second debate, and they're like, why do you support Trump? And literally the best thing she could come up with is because of the Supreme Court justices that he could nominate. That's like, 
that's like the only thing that's that you seriously... can come up with as someone's campaign manager? Because I signed a contract and it's too <laughs> late. That's why. <laughs> if you could, that's, that's why. so bad. Like that's like the party line people give when they Republicans hate Donald would su- Trump, but have to part. You know, have to vote party line. Like, Republicans would support a sentient manager. bowl of milk if it would appoint strict constitutional constructionalists to the Supreme Court. That's a very low bar. I know. I anyways. I but just... look, she's not the only person who's been she's damaged back by this. Away. I mean, we we look at Paul Ryan, who's who has. Had a meteoric rise, really, to uh, to the, you know being the leading Republican in Congress. Frankly, as a Speaker of the House, um, controls the largest block of Republicans. Uh, will probably still be Speaker of the House after the election, unless Clinton really, really trounces Trump. Relax on that. Um, which is possible. It's it's not it's not out of the question. But but likely Paul Ryan will still be around. This man built his whole career on being. The reasonable, smart guy who only cares about policy and just wants to make sure the numbers add up. And is and, somewhat folksy. And, yeah, and is and is friendly and yeah. has this has this nice smile and these pretty blue eyes. And they are gorgeous. They are. And and once had a beard. It was a good beard too. That was, it was a, a good beard. I was great beard. Was a great, yeah. that was a great beard. But uh, but aside from all this, he is now the guy who like wouldn't denounce Trump, and he's he's the guy who you know had planned he had planned a rally with Trump until until the freaking tape came out about Trump saying like bragging about sexual assault. Um, that it, it it was obvious that Trump was terrible, and Paul Ryan wouldn't distance himself from it. And I think it's emblematic of a problem within the Republican Party that, that it's a it's a party that is built around favorites favor favors for the rich that needs to get some some kind of coalition together of people who are not rich to vote for the things that the rich people want. And it has fallen apart because the people who they've, they've signed up for the movement turns out they don't really care about the favors for the rich anymore. And (laughs) Donald Trump has made all of, all of the, the sort of the deal makers like Paul Ryan look like it look like idiots. He's, he's destroyed Paul Ryan's career. That guy is never going to be taken seriously as just the smart, reasonable budget guy again. I mean, that was always kind of the radical promise of the Trump campaign. That's one promise he kept, is that he, like, fucked up the Republican establishment status quo. Yeah, I mean, right? that's completely destroyed. I mean, the Republican Party, as we know it, is completely destroyed. I mean, I, I don't even have any idea what will rise from the ashes of this campaign. Well, I mean, theoretically, it could be some more reasonable reformicon type of Republican Party. <laughs> You're such an optimist. I, well, I'm, I, <laughs> I mean, I think I think we're headed towards a schism. I don't know. I mean, I think yeah, I think that's obvious too. I and mean, we have we have uh, we have a de facto uh, Republican in exile running in on the West Coast, and Evan McMullen potentially winning Utah. I mean, the yeah, schism I mean, is already sort of unfolding. It's beginning. Um, and it, it's not just Paul Ryan. I mean, so many people got in bed with Donald Trump, and they'll be tainted forever all these, all these by people, the association. Chris Christie, Chris Christie, his political career is, is, is over. fucking over, man. I mean, not only – and he's been trying to pull away from Donald Trump, too. The other day, he, they were like, "What? It, what is about this campaign you're proud of? And he said, well, I'm proud of everything I said during the campaign. Are and you, though? I, I was like, <laughs> Are really? you, though, Chris Christie? Because you said some stuff. <laughs> right. Were you proud of when you fetched Remember hamburgers? Remember when you were a hostage and your wife? was also equally unhappy to be up there because yeah. that's what I remember. I mean, he's he's been just his his the 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 extent to which public esteem for him has fallen in New Jersey. It's been so vast and so fast that it's almost hard to imagine. Um, but Ted th- Cruz, but remember, remember, totally fucked this shit up. Uh, well, totally who cares? Everybody himself. hates Ted Cruz. I'm a fine that's, with him going down in a blame true, of yeah. floor. And also remember <laughs> that that. 
him that Christie signing up with the Trump campaign was a great way to distract from the fact that there is a giant criminal investigation into his administration for just creating traffic jams for no reason. Right. I mean, which is, I mean, that's one of the one of the real tragedies of the 2016 campaign is that his it has deflected attention from one of the dumbest, most idiotic, and hilarious political scandals of all time, which is Bridgegate. Yeah. And so I, I think it speaks to. You know, a year and a half ago, there was all this talk about how there's no Democratic bench and the Republican bench is so deep. Look how good all these people are. Yeah. Give me a break. <laughs> they got they got swamped. I mean, we talked uh, this time this time last year. We were still talking about how deep the Republican. No, maybe not this time. last. I mean, this time last year, no, we yeah, were watching yeah, yeah, we were watching like Chris Christie take down Marco Rubio in that debate. And it was beautiful. It was the robot commentary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, I believed in the Republican days. bench, too, and uh, I was wrong. I was wrong about so many things. One last thing before we go. Voter <laughs> fraud. Okay, I want to make a real clear distinction to people, <laughs> for people here. There's a huge difference between voter fraud and voter registration fraud, okay? That's true. If you register somebody who is not eligible to vote, you're not supposed to do that. It's a no-no, but it's not that big a deal because if you were, say, ACORN, Republicans used to go nuts about ACORN, this anti-poverty group. Uh, because the, their volunteers would would register like Mickey Mouse to vote. And the thing is, when you register Mickey Mouse to vote, no giant talking mouse shows up at the polls to try to vote as Mickey Mouse. Right. Okay? It, there's no way for that to actually turn into voter fraud where someone is trying to vote when they, when they do not have the eligibility to vote. So when the Trump campaign goes around saying that there are 4 million dead people on the voter rolls and that there's massive fraud and this thing could happen, that they are being ridiculous. And I also want to point out that 4 million is about 1% of the United States population. And Trump is down by about 10 points right now. So even if there, were a, there was a massive conspiracy to get 4 million people to vote illegally, there's no way it would tilt the election. Also, I just want to point out that a massive conspiracy to get 4 million people to vote in an election would be so enormously difficult to pull off. The chance that one of those four million people would, would let slip, hey, I'm part of a massive criminal conspiracy <laughs> is like so, so likely. So high. There's the, no way. And the penalties for coordinating any amount of voter fraud, and I'm talking about like two or three people, are so severe. As they should be. That right. you, you would not in your right mind do this as a plan. There are so many better ways to influence elections. The best way is to just be fucking rich. Or just be friends or just <laughs> be friends with Putin, you know? Right. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really fine. there's there it's you know it's the it's the most circuitous way to try to affect the outcome of an election. Rig up a voter fraud game. You know, just find a billionaire. Get you a billionaire who can do it all. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's my advice. We need a billionaire for this podcast. We do. If you're a billionaire out there and you'd oh, like please. to support a podcast, that'd be us. Please give me a call. You we, can also just support me. Yeah, support me. I'd be happy. We, yeah. we refuse to sell out to your dumb ass, but give but us we money. Might. What are you doing <laughs> with that money? <laughs> fast money should stay fast. So, very quickly, send us a check. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lauren and Zach, thank you for thank you. joining us. It's the last debate, guys. Yeah. Possibly, possibly ever. Possibly, possibly ever. ever. Bon voyage. Um, we have a very good show. Matt Taibbi is here, so please hang out and listen. Hold up. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, and I am joined on the phone today by Rolling Stone mm, journalist extraordinaire Matt Taibbi. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've got a big piece out on uh, some guy who's running for president. I don't know if people have heard about this, uh, but he's he's a real estate developer. Uh, Donald Trump apparently has been campaigning for like a year. Uh, who knew? I, I can't. I'm sure I'm like everybody else, and I can't wait until this is over and we don't have to hear about him. Yeah, I guess we have like a little under three weeks to go. But until then, um, we can keep torturing ourselves with this stuff. I mean, I thought... People have talked a lot about what Trump's candidacy means for the Republican Party. I thought your piece was a really thoughtful look at what it means for the state of American democracy more broadly. Um, can, you, can you just talk about that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. One of the things that I, you know, I always try to get at when I talk about Trump is, you know, because what, what's happened, I think, a lot in the summer, and this is sort of what one of the things that happens with all. American presidential elections is that we end up with this choice A versus choice B, and one side decides choice B is bad, and that's all you ever hear is choice B is bad. Now, in Trump's case, it's true, but nobody's <laughs> owning what, you know, the whole country had a role in creating the preconditions for this to happen. And what I was just trying to get at was the people who are voting for Donald Trump. Um, are voting, are making this very extreme choice because they don't feel like they have any other choices. They they feel dispossessed by the Republican Party and lied to. And if you go far enough back, um, some of them were also Democrats once upon a time and made the switch ages ago when they felt that the Democrats were no longer the party of working people. So mm -hmm. I was just trying to get at the fact that these are people who are making an extreme choice because they feel like they have no political power and they just want everybody who's involved in the system, including people like us in the press, uh, who are perceived as part of the, part of the whole, you know, oligarchical, uh, you know, power. Mm -hmm. They want 
that's all they have a comeuppance, and that's what the Trump thing is all about. When you uh, you attended a couple of different rallies, one in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, another one in Wisconsin. I mean, what did you see at these places? What 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 sort of things were were Trump supporters telling you that uh, that they gave you this this kind of impression? Well, I've been following Trump since the beginning of the the campaign trail, on and off. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, I would say his crowds were a little bit more diverse in the beginning. Um, they're pretty much entirely white now. Um, depending on where he is, you know, I went to one of his rallies in Iowa not long ago where it was pretty much entirely white people over 60, you know, it Mm -hmm. was, um, and a lot of ex-military types, people who'd served their country and felt betrayed and, and they want, you know, Trump to stick it to Mm -hmm. the man, basically. And, in Wilkes-Barre, it was a much younger crowd. Uh, you know, this is an area that's had a little bit of white supremacy kind of flirtations. Yeah. There was a Klan leafleting there recently, and that was a much younger crowd. Um, they were very, very aggressive. A lot of incredibly profane uh, signage um, mm-hmm. and, you know, conspiratorial thinking. But, if, again, if you talk to people in line, which I did, you know, extensively, um, they'll all say the same thing. It's it just keeps coming back to the fact that no matter how bad Trump is, no matter how much he sucks, he's not he's not part of the system, and that's why they are voting for him. And because they, they they just they distrust both parties to that extent, and which is is really remarkable. People really need to think about what that means, you know. Right, because <laughs> it's not like they don't know about you know the problems with Trump's past. What you know, even if you are sort of like this. Uh, you know, fascist, semi-fascist enthusiast. Um, it's not like he's a particularly competent one. And you make that point repeatedly in your in your article that like this guy is totally screwing it up, and and people can see that. Um, I, I think it's you know like um, Benji Sarlin for NBC had done some reporting about the way that the sort of Trump supporters have changed over time. That actually really early in the in the you know his his primary. Um, the people, the issue people talked about most was actually campaign finance spending when they when they identified as Trump supporters, um, and I feel like that's totally been like, that. That is definitely not something you hear about discussed uh, with with the phenomenon anymore. It's it's always about uh, about race and and uh, and demagoguing immigrants and and Muslims and you know all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, with with a, a, a little bit of a subtext of anti globalism too. I mean. A lot of people, if you talk to these crowds, I would say one in five people that you talk to will bring up Brexit, which is surprising because, you know, how many Americans really care about what goes on in the rest of the world, and especially in the, from, from this group. But they, they feel some solidarity uh, there with with that decision. And that is not an uncomplicated decision that, you know, that went on in Brexit. I mean, a lot of people pitched it as as a pure xenophobia, anti-immigrant vote. Uh, it was that, but it you know it had some other elements too that are similar to what what's going on here. Um, you know, people feel like they are being asked to worry about the the you know level of poverty and de- uh, in places like India and China um, at the expense of their own economic well-being, and they'll talk about that and they'll say that's not my problem. Why why did I sign up for that? You know, mm. and, um, and they're pissed about it. Now, you, you mentioned uh, in your piece, you talk about, you know, the, the emails that have come out from Hillary Clinton, uh, the basket of deplorables comment, things like that. I mean, what 
What do you think the Democratic Party needs to do to prevent things like this happening again in the future? I mean, we, we the Republican Party, I think people have gone over its failures a thousand times. Um, but I feel like I, when I watch the Democrats, it just seems to me like the the alter, the the reaction is to point at Trump and say he's bad, point at the supporters and say they're bad. We're the good people, so we can move on. Um, but does, what do you think needs to happen there? Uh, I think that's a very good point and a very it's a, it's a very dangerous moment for the democrats and i was i was trying to make that point which is that if you draw the lesson from this trump affair that you're just you're safe politically and you know you don't need to reform yourself because the republicans are in such a state of collapse and schism they've radicalized to such a degree that all you really have to do is run against them forever uh, especially if if the Trumpite wing, you know, continues to dominate on that side. Mm. Um, but the, the Democrats have almost equally serious problems. I mean, I think the, 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 the Bernie Sanders campaign really represented, especially among young voters, this feeling that their leaders are not in touch with them and they're not, not in touch with their concerns. And that's, and that I think is what, what the, it wasn't a scandal in the WikiLeaks. Uh, dump, especially about the speeches, mm-hmm. but it was very revealing. You know, Here, here's the real Hillary Clinton talking openly and honestly and and um, and thoughtfully about the future, but she's doing it with Lloyd Blankfein, right. and she can't do it, she can't do it with voters, and that's a serious problem. You know, I mean, I, 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 you know, we, it's something we can litigate after the election, obviously, but it, it's it, the Democrats have to figure that out because that's not going to work going forward. Yeah, and it's not just a question of of you know what policies she's uh, she's going to endorse. Although obviously that will be really important for the country, uh, but you can just see she she seems very very comfortable with a super elite crowd. Um, and when she's campaigning, she doesn't always appear to be comfortable with you know the voters out there, which is true for the Democrats. I mean, it's been true for a long time. Uh, and I think if you go back, I mean, you can go back to the the Bill Clinton presidency that. The Democratic strategy is always to point at the Republicans and say, what are you going to do, vote for them? They're, look how terrible they are. And for 30 years, they keep getting worse. So the argument, you know, the argument improves, but the country deteriorates. Right. Yeah. No, but, but you can't do that forever. That's the whole point. I mean, eventually, eventually that's going to it's going to come out of your support uh, among young people. They're going to lose support among uh, you know, African American voters, Hispanic voters. I mean, they have to deliver eventually. You know, right. and they just they 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 haven't really been upfront with their constituents about what their economic plan is. They've just been running against Trump the whole year, and um, I don't know. I mean, I I think of stories like this Dakota Access Pipeline story, right, that's mm-hmm. coming out now, and this is a classic example. Is you you have to choose what's what side you're on in issues. You can't have it both ways. So, and you know, you're mm-hmm. you're either on the side of the pipeline company or or you're on the side of of the people who are trying to prevent the pipeline from happening. And right. this is this repeats itself all over politics. You're either on the side of the, of the big expensive company that that gives a lot of money in donations or you're on the side of people. And very often it's as simple as that and they 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 tend to make them the, the money choice and that's the problem. Yeah, and people can tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even if they don't know exactly how, you know, mm-hmm. that, that that's what happens when you become too uh, intimate with people like that, you start to see the world through their 
that their point of view, and I think that's that's the dangerous thing about the you know those Lloyd Black fine tapes is you see that that shared perspective. The, the the stuff that makes me optimistic is is the fact that that Democrats at least got a very public wake up call from the Bernie Sanders campaign. I, I feel like it was it was not in any way unclear to the, the leaders in the party what the young people in the party wanted, what direction they were trying to push that they wanted the party to move in. Um, so if you know, it's not like that message has been obscured, uh, but I, I guess the, the party has got to figure out if it can, um, if it can actually get it together and do that and move in that direction. I just wonder I mean, if I were the Democrats, the current Democrats, and and things were arrayed the way they are now. My solution to that problem would be to find a way to more effectively market myself to those people and not really change. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, the Democrats have been very good at marketing over the years. They've they've marketed. Lots of different politicians, um, and that's what I worry about: is that they'll find a way to to, to sell it better, but not actually change. You know. Um, yeah. But you know, we'll see. You're right; it could, it could go the other way too. Or, of course, then we could also just have you know a little financial crisis or some moderate recession, and everything will just go to hell. I mean, if things are as bad as they are now, while during a, a you know at least a, a technical recovery. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could be something like that, you know. And and it, it, look, this this is what happened after after the financial crisis too. Is you had you had all these people who were in foreclosure, who were losing their houses, who had their their savings wiped out. And for for the people in power, the problem went away as soon as the stock market recovered, mm-hmm. and they didn't feel the pain. You know, there, there was lingering pain for the rest for everybody else. But for you know, for people who mattered, you know, the, it, the problem was pretty much resolved as soon as they stopped the bleeding with the bailouts. Mm-hmm. So this, this is just sort of symptomatic of of the, this divide between the electorate and politicians. And people forget that the whole Tea Party thing. I mean, it was very well uh, co-opted by the, the Republican Party uh, leadership, but uh, and, and the you know, sort of existing conservative movement infrastructure. Um, but there, there was some polling data that came out, you know, as late as 2010, where a majority of people who identified as Tea Partiers thought the government wasn't doing enough to provide financial aid to people facing foreclosure. Um, and it's it's now discussed as this big anti-government movement. But you can see there was there was real unrest over what was materially happening in the economy with these people. Um, and we we just sort of shrugged it off like, oh, I guess it's uh, it'll work out eventually. And we started talking, at least in D.C., we started talking about, you know, politics as usual. Yeah, no, you're right. That, 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 that's exactly what. Um... Uh, God, who was who was that uh, that Bush speechwriter uh, David Frum, who was mm-hmm. writing about uh, earlier this year in, in the Atlantic? He was saying, you know, here, here, there were all these signs that, that this was out there during the Tea Party movement, during during the Mitt Romney election. There were there were signs that 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 um, the Republican electorate wanted the party to do more for for ordinary working class people, and instead they just got more of the same deregulations, cutting taxes. Um, trickle down supply side economics, mm-hmm. like they thought that was going to, you know, resonate with people at a time of real economic difficulty. It's just delusional, right? I mean, I, <laughs> it's, just, it's just weird to me that they couldn't see it. Trump shouldn't be supr- a surprise in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, people can see it in the next couple of years, so we don't go completely to hell. But Matt Taibbi, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks a lot, Zach. Take care. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank 
all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as usual by Arthur Delaney. And we have a very special guest on the phone today. He is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Wisconsin and the author of Woodrow Wilson, which coincidentally is a biography of Woodrow Wilson, who was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Please welcome to the show John Milton Cooper, Jr. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, at the at the DNC this year, at the, at the convention, uh, Tim Kaine gave a speech where he mentioned a guy who doesn't often come up, I think, uh, at least over the last decade or so, in discussions of the Democratic Party's legacy. He talked about Woodrow Wilson. And usually, I think Democrats trace their history back to FDR. They talk about Lyndon Johnson. They try to figure out what to do with Bill Clinton. And then Barack Obama is good again. Um, but he talked about Wilson, and, and you wrote you know, an 800-page biography of this guy. You've been a scholar who's followed him his whole life. Um, where does Wilson fit into this sort of broader party history? Well, I think he fits in uh, a, a very, very well, essentially. Look, the, the modern Democratic Party um, really began uh, 120, say 120 years ago with William Jennings Bryan's nomination. Uh, for the Democrats in 1896. That's when they shucked off being the party of uh, state rights, limited government, that kind of thing. In mm-hmm. fact, you know, we, we had a big horse laugh. Uh, was it earlier this year when uh, Gail Collins made a big horse laugh out of Mike Huckabee uh, going back to Grover Cleveland and praising him for what he'd done in vetoing aid to farmers and things like that. <laughs> you know, sure, it, it, it was funny, but as a matter of fact, I think Huckabee, Huckabee was was exactly right. The, I mean, the the, the present day Republican Party, with this small government, but really anti government uh, uh, thrust of theirs, uh, really those those were the Democrats. Those were the Democrats of the Civil War and post Civil War era. And Grover Cleveland was their uh, champion. Of course, he was their only president uh, uh, between between uh, Buchanan, <laughs> Buchanan and Wilson. But uh, that's where the Democrats were. And in 1896. Uh, they sloughed it off. In fact, I, I'm surprised that more people haven't made comparisons with uh, Trump today and Brian, although they're very, very different people. Because um, what happened was there were populists, that li- literally, I mean, the, the People's Party, the populists to the capital mm-hmm. P, uh, had this advanced program of uh, particularly economic reform, getting the federal government involved in the economy, antitrust, uh, uh, the currency, uh, Railroad regulation, um, these, these kind of financial regulation, these kinds of things. And, uh, what the Democrats did, a significant number of them, particularly from the South and the West, uh, basically swallowed the populists and uh, didn't exactly kick the Cleveland Democrats out of the party, but they just shouldered them aside. And that's when, that, that's when the Democrats essentially became uh, the party of the have-nots, uh, more economic have-nots than, than social have-nots, I and mean, that, that, that would be a problem. And, uh, okay, they lost. They, they, lo- they lost big in, in 1896. Uh, it's kind of one of the great oddities today is that the two parties have really flipped their constituencies. The uh, present-day blue states were the, the McKinley. That was the, the, uh, the Republican coalition, which uh, 
there were enough states and enough population to give them one very solid lock on the presidency in Congress, which, with the one interruption of Wilson, uh, lasted until the early 1930s, and certainly the, strong, the strongest hold a party has ever had had on the presidency. But, the, but one thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll quit yakking so much, but the uh, uh, the irony is that it was really the losers in 1896 who set the political agenda for the next 25 years. Uh, currency reform, antitrust, regulation, uh, all these all these kinds of things. And Wilson's the guy who brings it to fruition. I mean, it essentially, it, it, given an analogy, he is to um, he is he is to Brian what Reagan was to Goldwater. Notice the the man who came in 16 years later and really. Uh, fulfill the agenda. Professor Cooper, uh, your biography of Wilson has been billed as uh, you know, bringing him back, basically, maybe in the way that we've seen Alexander Hamilton brought back by a Broadway musical. I'd love to have a Broadway show. You got anybody who could do that for me? Well, you? first, to, to get it going, the Broadway show, catch us up a little bit on some of the very simple, basic facts about what Wilson achieved when he was president. Well, uh, look, legislative presidents of the 20th century, and maybe of all American history, were Franklin Roosevelt, of course, the New Deal. New Deal. Right. Lyndon Johnson, Great Society, and Woodrow Wilson, the New Freedom. Federal Reserve, income tax, first aid, federal aid to farmers, first uh, national labor legislation, uh, a bill to prohibit child labor. The Supreme Court struck that down later. Uh, Louis Brandeis to the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it's it, it's really a remarkable legislative legislative record. And if you want to look at it, uh, Wilson did not have the advantages going for him that uh, that FDR and LBJ did. I mean, FDR had a national emergency, the worst national emergency since the Civil War, the Depression, and uh, he had a blank check from Congress. Uh, LBJ had spent his entire adult life on Capitol Hill. He knew it in and out. He mastered the Senate. Uh, and he could capitalize, of course, on the, the wave of national remorse with, with Kennedy's assassination. Uh, Wilson had a good, good wind at his political back, too, for, for progressivism, but this guy was only two, two years removed from private life. Two years before he became president of the U.S., uh, he had been president of Princeton University. Uh, and, uh, in between, he was governor of New Jersey and did a spectacular job at that, but, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't have the same the same sort of extrinsic advantages that the other two did. Well, well so, Professor, he, he accomplishes all of this stuff. Um, but I feel like, you know, un, until the last few years, the reputation that he had was someone who was just an incorrigible racist. Um, he uh, still, still seems to have that reputation, doesn't he, with the latest stuff uh, at Princeton, especially where they're trying to, you know, there, there was an effort to try to remove his name from some things. Yeah. So how does that fit into, I mean, we, we, this this image of him as a progressive reformer on economic issues, but, you know, trying to segregate the federal workforce. Uh, I mean, how how does that, that fit together? Well, it, uh, I, I, wish, I wish I could say it, it's a terrible contradiction, but it's not. Uh, if you look at the major white politicians of that period, um, there's not there's only one or two that you can you can point to who were really any good on the uh, on the on matters of racial justice what what we have there the the south the south had the white whites whites had re, regained control of the south they got their solid south yeah. and basically uh, as far as the white north was concerned well let them have it uh race is a southern problem 
we just as soon forget about it and ignore it. Now, one of the one of the strange things is that with Wilson, people say, "Oh, well, he was a Southerner." It's quite true. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born in Virginia, and then he was raised in Georgia and South Carolina. But he spent his entire adult life in the North, uh, and uh, his attitudes were much more the attitudes of white Northerners at that time, which were they just they considered race race kind of a a pesky distraction from other things and something that would take care of itself one way or the other. I mean, he was different from his Southern relatives even because. Uh, for Southerners, for white Southerners, race was always lurking there in the background. Something they were always hyper, hyper alert uh, to any kind, anything that might threaten uh, threaten their racial hegemony. And frankly, there just wasn't much. I mean, the, the the real the civil rights movement had just barely gotten started when Wilson became president. Well, let, let's talk about his his foreign policy legacy here before we've got to go, uh, because I think that's what people. When, when I was in middle school, and I had a middle school professor or teacher who just loved, adored Woodrow Wilson, um, she talked about the League of Nations a lot. What 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 was he pushing for, and, and are there echoes of of that in international institutions that exist today? Well, uh, people want to say that the UN is the successor to the League of Nations, and in many ways, that's how it was sold, uh, particularly in, in World War II. You know, Wilson, uh, a lot of it in this country was. Let's make it up to Wilson. You know, let, let's we we didn't heed his warning while he was alive. You know, he wanted to take us into the League of Nations. He he created the League of Nations and wanted to take us in and wanted it to be an, an, an you know an, an international body that would would prevent major wars. Well, we didn't go in, and sure enough, uh, there was a major war. Uh, so the UN was sold, or at least a lot of people sold themselves on it as doing it right this time. Actually, the United Nations is a much weaker organization than the League of Nations was designed to be. Uh, the, the, League, the League of Nations was a true collective security organization. If you want to look to true collective security organizations now, uh, I think you'd look to NATO. You look to NATO and you look to, uh, in some ways, some aspects of the European Union. In other words, those are the kinds of things where they really can put some, some clout, some force, uh, different kinds of force. It can be economic sanctions. That's that was the preferred thing, and the preferred thing then too. But you know, the the last resort can be can be military force, which the UN can do it. It did it in Korea, but that was under very peculiar circumstances. And basically, it's not it's not designed for that. But uh, but Wilson, in some ways, I think the the kind of world we face today uh, is much more like. Uh, the world that, that Wilson was was uh, trying to deal with at the end of World War One, and there was just a lot of disorder and chaos and uh, ferment in uh, ferment, especially in what what we now would call the Third World. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that, that that kind of thing. That was what he was trying to deal with. And uh, by and large, uh, I don't think he's honored all that much in in uh, in, in in foreign policy. There's a while there that. George W. Bush was called Woodrow Wilson on steroids. In other words, he was. Oh dear. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, which was, uh, I, it was in some ways, was unfair to both of them because um, uh, Wilson, it, Wilson did was not a great. He was a democracy promoter in the sense that he was glad to see it promoted, and he thought that that would be good for the world. But he was very clear that he did not. We couldn't force democracy on other people that didn't want it. Well, John Milton Cooper, we got to end it there. Uh, the the uh, <laughs> there are time limits on these podcasts, but uh, this is all really fascinating. Um, your book is called well, one of your many books is called Woodrow Wilson. It's a fascinating biography, and we strongly recommend it to all of our listeners. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and, and we'll look for the musical next year. 
we'll all get tickets for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that's what happened this week. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by historian and author John Cooper Miller Jr., Rolling Stone columnist Matt Taibbi, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.